Matthew chapter 8, verse 117. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralysed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go. And he goes, and to another, come. And he comes, and to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marvelled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfil what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. I thought I'd start this evening with a bit of a quiz for you. There's one already. (laughs) Because I'm conscious coming tonight... But most of you don't know what you about me, okay? I understand that. Normally in my own church, everyone will know who I am. You know, they'll pull up with me. But here, you might know. So, I'll give you this information. I haven't got very much in the way of musical ability. You know, I'm, I can't hold the tune in the bucket. I'm not, not great on music, okay? So, with that in mind, I'm going to give you a true or false quiz. You with me? Okay. Yes. Hello, Eddie. Number one. I once played a brass instrument outside Liverpool Liverpool Cathedral, the second biggest cathedral in Britain. True or false? Hands up straight. Hands up for true. Oh, that's, that's very impressive, true. That actually is true. <laughs> uh, I was in the boys' brigade, and there uh, we went. Every year we used to march to Liverpool Cathedral, and didn't get anything thrown at us, hardly anything thrown at us at all. Yeah, that was good, that's true. Half you got that right, I think, okay. Number two, is this true or is it false? I don't know. I once sang in an opera. <laughs> true or false? Hands up for true. Thanks, Charles. <laughs> Thank you, Charles. That one of the Hands up for false. All those false. Well, actually, that's true as well. <laughs> that's one nil for Charles, okay? And, uh, yeah, at school, at a light opera, the Pirates of Penzance. I uh, was a, a pirate in the first act and a policeman in the second. Toronto, it was tremendous. Okay, 
So it's one little Charles. Number three, though, chance to get your own back. I once trod the boards leading a rock band as the lead singer. True or false? Who's for false? Oh, there's a few falses, a few falses. Who's for true? true. Well, actually, yes, that one is true as well. That was true. <laughs> Tragically, yes, I was uh, at school, I was in a rock band. And after we performed, the concerts were abandoned. That's how good we were. They never played them again. Final one, final one. True or false? I once played the violin in an orchestra. <laughs> Hand up for true. <laughs> That's very kind, yeah. Hand up for false. There's lots of false. Hannah, you know, the daughter was false. Maybe went, went too short there, I don't know. Well, actually, this is true as well. I can't read music. I've never learned the violin. But I once played the violin in an orchestra. Let me explain. I was 16 years old. I was at uh, St. Margaret's High School for young gentlemen. And we got a new music teacher. And in the first week in assembly, they said, there's going to be a senior orchestra practice. And so me and my friends got together, and about half a dozen of us, and said, wouldn't it be a bit of a laugh to go along, even though we can't play the instruments, we just pretend we're in the orchestra. So we got to dinner time, we went down to the first years, nicked all the instruments off them, I happened to have a violin. And we went along into the music room, and there'd be about I don't know, 10, maybe 15 of us, sitting there, half of whom have never played an instrument before in their lives, okay? And the teacher came in, Miss Lamb, her name was, brand new music teacher, and she, she started to talk to us. And she began to chat about music, and what instrument we're interested in, what composers we liked, and things like that. And she talked away, I mean, we could answer some questions, and it was all going fine. Until then she said, okay, now let's play some music. And she had the chairs in the semicircle and she was at a piano a bit like that one at the back and she sat down and she began to play now it's difficult to describe what it was like really if you can imagine what a violin is like when it's played even by somebody who knows it doesn't always sound great does it but when you go and the teacher kept going looking over like what's going wrong here and carried on and the session ended and we got in a little bit of trouble for pretending we were in see the thing was when she was talking to us during the lesson we were absolutely fine. But when it came to actually doing it, well, that's when we fell to pieces. And over the last three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, you've had nothing but talk. Not just any old talk. You know, the most remarkable teaching the world has ever seen. You know, even the cynics look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, you know, if that was all there was, then yet we'd accept it. And so remarkable was it that at the end of chapter 7, the people said, this is the most amazing thing we've ever seen. But now it's time for action. And you'll find that over the next couple of chapters, Matthew's going to list quite a number of miracles. And we get to near the end of chapter 9, verse 33. And the people look at what he's done. And they say, we've never seen anything like it. So they hear his teaching, they say we've never heard anything like it. They see his actions, they say we've never seen anything like it. Because these miracles, they're not just random acts of kindness. They're here to show us who Jesus is, to prove the truth of his teaching, and to prove the truth of his claims. 
And he ends the Sermon on the Mount with, with the, the, the parable, you know, of the, the, the builders. And basically the parable of the builders is saying, if you don't do what I say, you're a fool and you're heading for disaster. Now that's quite strong stuff, isn't it? And whilst lots of the crowd were saying, this is amazing, there were a significant number of people who were saying, who does he think he is? Saying things like that. Well, Matthew's answer in these verses is this man who's speaking like this is the king of all and therefore we should follow him. Now all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they all want us to believe and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, John famously at the end of his gospel says, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And that's a very bold statement. But Matthew is just the same. He wants his readers to know and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And his gospel is often called the gospel of the kingdom. And there are three things which is repeated time and time again in Matthew's gospel. One, it's that Jesus is the promised king. Two, it's that Jesus is the king, not just of Israel, but of everyone. And it's three, that because he is the king of everyone, you have to follow him. You know, we see that, if we just take a couple of angles, near the beginning, we have the, the story of the wise men, chapter two. I'm sure we all know the story of the wise men. I say that, I was preaching last couple of weeks ago in Cheshire, and I preached on David and Goliath and said, I'm sure everyone knows David and Goliath. And this lady came up at the end and said, I've never heard of them. She was from China, first time she'd been here. She'd never, never heard the Bible, never heard this stuff. So, okay. I'm hoping you've all heard the, the wise men. You know who the wise men are. Well, they come along, and what do they say? They, the question they have is, where is the king? Jesus is the king. Who are they? They're wise men from the east. Jesus is the king of everyone. And what do they do when they find the baby, when they find the child? They bow down and they worship. Jesus is the king. He's the king of everyone. And he demands our worship, our allegiance. That's right from the start. Goes to the very end of Matthew's Gospel and you have what's known as the Great Commission. Jesus is about to leave his disciples behind and he says to them, All authority is given to me. He's the king. Therefore you go into all the nations. He's the king of everyone. And teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. He's the king, he's the king of everyone, and they have to follow him. He demands our allegiance. And so when we come to these verses, we're going to use that same, those same three themes. You know, we could have split it by people. A lot of the leper and the centurion servant and Peter's mother-in-law. We could have got it by geography. So in verse 1, we read Jesus comes down from the mountain. In verse 5, we read he goes into Capernaum. In verse 14, he goes into Peter's house. But we're not going to do that. We're going to split it thematically. And see three things. Do I have to click this to my button? I'm not used to this new technology. Got it? Oh, look at that. Already. We're going to see Jesus is the king. Secondly, we're going to see Jesus is the king of all. And thirdly, we're going to see Jesus, as king of all, demands our allegiance. So number one, we have Jesus is the king. I'm not sure what that is, but okay. <laughs> Sorry about it. Leave it. Okay, okay. 
Okay, so how is Jesus the king? Well, first of all, he's shown in these verses as the king by reversing the case. What does that mean? Well, back in Genesis chapter 3, you know, Adam and Eve have fallen and God pronounced a case upon the world. And part of the case that's come upon the world because of Genesis chapter 3 is sickness and death. And the miracles that Jesus performs here in this chapter are undoing what the case has done. Undoing what sin has done. Now let's be clear on that. That doesn't mean that these people were ill because of their sin. That's a wrong view. And yet it's, it's a view that loads of people hold. That somehow, if you're suffering, it's your fault. So you go to the book of Job in the Old Testament. And Job suffers terribly. He loses his family, he loses his business, he becomes ill, he's got these, these boils all over him. He's, he's in all sorts of agony. And his friends come along, and the first thing they say to him is, this Job, what have you done? Why have you ended up like this? You must have done something terrible. We go to John chapter 9, and Jesus meets this blind beggar. And his disciples say to him, well, this fellow's been blind from birth. Is it his fault? Or is it his mum and dad's fault? And Jesus said, it's neither. He goes to Acts 28, and here's Paul. He goes to Malta. He gets shipwrecked from Malta. And he's there on the beach, and he's picking up firewood, and he picks up a snake by accident, and he gets bitten by a snake. And all the locals, the, the Maltesers, the Maltese people, they, they say... Maybe it's not all teasers, okay. They say, they say, this man must be a murderer. Because he's been bitten by a snake. He, you know, he, he, he escaped this, this shipwreck and now being bitten. He must be done something wrong. And of course, Paul recovers. So this, this idea that if somebody is suffering, they're getting what they deserve. But that's not what's taught in the scriptures. You know, in 1973... There was a couple of very big Christmas hits. One was Slade. We all know the Slade, I don't be okay, yeah. But <laughs> I won't sing it to you, don't worry. But the one that was also released in the same year was by a man called Greg Lake, called I Believe in Father Christmas. You know that one? Yeah, well, that's a, a massive seller, but because Slade was so big, it didn't get to number one. Now, that, that's quite good musically, but it's very clever lyrically. Because it has this quite sort of bitter and twisted view of things. And so the first verse says, they told me there'd be snow at Christmas. They told me there'd be peace on earth. But instead it just kept on raining, a veil of tears for the virgin birth. That's a great opening line, a veil of tears for the virgin birth. But the very last verse says, Hallelujah Noel, be it heaven or hell, the Christmas we get, we deserve. We deserve. That's right. <laughs> Sing along with me. No, okay, that, that's right. That's right. <laughs> The Christmas we get, we deserve. Now, it, it seems to me that that's the exact opposite of what the Christmas message is. The Christmas message is we get what we don't deserve because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. It's the exact opposite of the gospel. And so here is Jesus reversing the impact of the fall. And it's something only the king can do. And all creation has been marred by sin. You see, sin is like a moral earthquake. And the Garden of Eden is the epicentre. But the shock waves of that earthquake are felt right around the globe. 
And we all feel the impact of living in a fractured world. All creation is groaning, we're told. So you get thorns and thistles and all the things that, that go wrong in the world. But the biggest impact of the fall, the biggest impact of the case, is on me and on you. You know, when I was a kid, even before 1973, I think this might have been. <laughs> we're going way back here. There used to be a programme on the telly called The Good Old Days. Now, there's one or two who remember that, maybe. <laughs> One or two of the more mature ones remember that. Some of you younger ones. But it, it was a variety programme. And they used to have various acts, like singers and dancers and ventriloquists and jugglers and things. Each week they'd have different ones on. And at the end of, end of the show, all the acts would come back on stage and they'd sing down at the old bull and bush. Do you remember that, yeah? Down at the old bull... OK, I would sing it again. And the man who used to introduce it... He'd bring all the acts back onto stage and he'd say, you know, here's whoever, Claude Rogers and Ken Dodd or whoever it might have been that week. And then he'd turn to the audience and say, but chiefly, it's yourselves. He would say it very grandly like that. He was an unusual man. Leonard Sachs, he used to introduce it. Chiefly, yourselves. Well, can I tell you, the fall and the curse has had many terrible effects. But chiefly, it's upon ourselves. And the greatest effect of the fall of man is not physical illness that these people had, but spiritual death. And these verses remind us that our great king has dealt with our greatest need in reversing the curse. Number two, he's demonstrating his power. So verse three, here's this man who comes along. He's wretched. He's hopeless. And Jesus says they are done. Here's this most fearful, this most dreadful of diseases. And it's simply dismissed. You know, Matthew, as you probably found, is anchored in the Old Testament. Count how many times he says this is done to fulfil the scriptures. Well, here, what's he doing? Well, the first miracle he records is, is this one about leprosy. What was the, the first miracle that Moses performed in the Old Testament? He goes to free the people of Israel from Egypt. And the first thing he does is he cures leprosy. He puts his hand in his coat and brings it out and it's leprous. And so I think Matthew, I'm sure, is drawing a parallel here. Here's Moses. He was the saviour of Israel. Here's Jesus. He's the saviour of the world. And verse 13, here's the centurion's servants. And there's no contact. It's simply done. The paralysis is cured. Verse 14, he walks into, into Peter's house and he just picks uh, his mother-in-law up and off she goes. Fine. Then verse 16, whether it's an individual or whether it's great crowds, it makes no difference. Here were the demon-possessed who were brought to him and they're healed with a word. Here are the sick, whatever they've got, they're healed. You know, I think if you were a doctor in Capernaum, you'd be out of work, wouldn't you? There's nobody sick left. They've all been to see Jesus. And in each case, each case, because his power is absolute, the change is immediate. Verse 3, immediately. Verse 13, he says, at that very moment. Verse 15, she arose and saved straight away. So he's certainly demonstrating his power. But it's not just his power, he's also demonstrating his authority. 
See, as king of the universe, he's not only all-powerful, but he has the right to do as he pleases. Now, this is something the leper understood. Because when the leper comes, he doesn't even ask. He says, if you are willing. This is something the centurion understood. He says, look, I'm a man under authority. I know I've got men telling, telling me what to do, and I've got men that I tell what to do. I understand how it works. You see, power and authority are not the same thing. You know, if you're a policeman stopping traffic with your hand, you see them sometimes doing that, don't you? Well, you do that because you've got authority. But if some massive truck comes along and decides they're not going to stop, you haven't got the power to stop them, it just goes straight through you. You've only got the authority and not the power. Or if you're a prison officer, walking down the, you know, the, the jail, you've got your, your, your keys on your, your, your band, your, your, whatever you call it, your key ring. Okay, that's the word. And you've got all the keys there. Now you've got the power to unlock all the doors if you want. But you don't have the authority. But Jesus has power and authority. He has might and he has right. And they're both in his you know, throughout history, lots of men have had might but not had right. Have had power but haven't had the authority. You know, in recent months I've been listening to a bit of uh, Mongolian folk music, as you do. And uh, <laughs> one, of, one of the people they sing a lot about in Mongolian folk music is Genghis Khan. Now, if you know anything about history, Genghis Khan in the 12th century, or whatever it was, now, he had enormous power. The Mongols, it's a very small country, and yet they conquered the whole of China. He had the mice. But you look at what he did, he was horrendous, he was so cruel. He didn't have the right. And the Bible tells us one day the Lord Jesus Christ will judge the world in righteousness. And that means he'll put everything right. That everything will be resolved, that everything will be in its right place. And because he has absolute power, and because he has absolute authority, he can do anything, but he will never do anything wicked. So he's reversing the course, the case. He's showing his power. He's showing his authority. Fourthly, he's showing his compassion. You know, there are lots of examples in history and today where people have power and authority, but don't have compassion. I remember a song that my dad used to play by Harry Seacombe called, called If I Rule the World. If I Rule the World, every day will be the first day of spring. I wonder if I rule the world, what would you do? What, what change would you make if you rule the world? You know, free ice cream for everyone. Free jollof rice for whatever it might be, you know. <laughs> Liverpool deducted 50 points. That I'd go for it. You know, every season. <laughs> we'd all have the things that we'd like to do. But here is Jesus who does rule the world. And he shows compassion. See, the church-going respectable types would have nothing to do with this leper that comes along. In the Talmud, a couple of rabbis wrote, one of them said, when you see a leper, the first thing you do is pick up a stone and throw it at him. Another one said, wrote, don't eat eggs if they've been bought on a street where a leper lives. Literally, they were untouchable. And yet, verse 3, Jesus touches this man. 
You can almost hear the crowd gasp, what's he doing? Because there were no untouchables and there were no outcasts as far as the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned. I know the church doesn't always make that clear, does it? Maybe the church isn't always compassionate as it should be. But Christ always is. Whether it's this, this filthy leper, whether it's this Gentile centurion, whether it's this, this, this no mark of a widow. You know, in our, the church we grew up in, I spent most of our, our years, 20 odd years in, our pastor used to use lots of sort of pithy phrases, if you like, that used to stick in your mind. And on this subject, the thing he used to say was, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And the Christian life is easy if it's just talk, isn't it? But we're called to get our hands dirty. And Jesus is the king with power and authority and he's able to reverse the curse and his, his compassion shows he's willing to do this. How do we apply that? Well, think of this. If all we need is wise counsel and guidelines and rules for life, well, Matthew could have got to the end of chapter 7 and put his pen down and said, well, I've finished now. Well, here's the truth we need to know. We don't just need the teacher's word. We need the healer's touch as well. We don't simply need the words of eternal life. We need the power to change lives that Christ has. And these people need to be changed. And all people need to be changed. Because we are not well. It's easy to admit we don't know everything, isn't it? But it's more difficult to say, well, I'm not well, I need healing. Maybe that's because, you know, we don't want to seem weak or, you know, worried what other people might think or we want to be reliant upon ourselves. But the truth is that we're so twisted out of shape by sin that only the Messiah, only God's King can really help us. And the Gospel isn't just about correct teaching, although it must be that, but it's about reaching out and touching people as well. And we can't do that on our own. So first of all, we see Jesus as king. Secondly, we see Jesus as king. He says, conflict of all. Jesus is king over all. What does that mean? First of all, it means no one is excluded. No one is too bad. See, here's these great crowds. Everyone else would draw back when this leper came. They'd be repulsed by him. I read this thing that said that all five senses would be assaulted by a leper. So your sight, they'd look terrible. Their eyebrows would fallen out. They'd be covered in all sorts of sores. They would smell awful. The sores would be affected. Their hearing, they said apparently when they spoke, their vocal cords would be affected. They'd have this really weird sort of guttural, uh, uh, like Sean Dice, uh, like that sort of voice, if you know who he is. If you don't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> So their speaking would be affected. The touch, you wouldn't touch them. You know, lepros literally means a Greek word that means scales. That's what the skin was like. And even your taste, apparently, if you went near them, you could taste things in your mouth. They were, they were terrible, wretched people. And yet here's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why verse 2, it says, Behold, look at this. Lepers never approached anyone, but he comes. You see, if you know your own heart, then you know the Bible is true when it says that man's heart is desperately wicked 
and deceitful above all things. And the Bible tells us that the best of our actions are just filthy rags. And when you know that's true, and when you know that's true about you, then it's exceptionally good news that no one is too bad for Jesus to touch and to heal. But Jesus is the king of all also means no one is excluded by birth. Here's the centurion. He's a Gentile. You know, you might think a centurion, he's a Roman. but well, he probably wouldn't be a Roman. He'd probably be a Samaritan. The Romans wouldn't have centurions from their own. You know, they'd be higher up the ranks, you know. So the centurions would generally be people from the countries they conquered. So here's, in all likelihood, a Samaritan. Again, nothing to do with him. But it's not even him, it's his slave. And you know, Jesus, read verse 10, marvels at this man. Marvels this man cared about his slave. Marvels that he understood about how authority works. And then in verse 11 and 12, we're reminded that he is the king of all nations. Jesus says many will come from the east and the west and sit down in the kingdom of heaven. And it also reminds us what the big issue is. It's not a matter of being well or being sick. It's not where we're born. But it's are you in the kingdom? Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? That he lived a life he couldn't live? That he died in your place? That he rose again to secure you being right with God? And he did all that to deal with our greatest problem. Not our physical ailments. But our sin that separates us from a holy God. And keeps us out of the kingdom of heaven. No one is by birth. No one is too insignificant. Here's Peter's mother-in-law. She's got a bit of a temperature. That's all it was. You know, it's more serious in the first century. But certainly nothing compared to the leper and the, the man who was paralysed. But still Jesus heals her. And the result, verse 16, is many came. In Mark's gospel, he says the whole city were there. And how does Matthew conclude? Verse 17. He doesn't simply say Jesus cures our illness. He says he took our illnesses. He bore our diseases. He's quoting there from Isaiah 53. That's all about how the Son of God will come and will stand in our place and will bear our punishment. Because the Messiah didn't just come to teach and to show. But he came to go to the cross. To carry in his own body the curse of all of his people. And this passage has these miraculous healings. And yet it ends with a quote about substitution. About Jesus dying in our place. And that naturally leads us to our third point. Jesus as king over all demands our allegiance. You see, we could have learned from this passage about the leper, how he came reverently, how he knelt, how he worshipped before he asked for anything. That's good. We could have learned about the centurion, about his faith. We could have learned from Peter's mother-in-law how she gets up and she serves straight away. They're all reasonable lessons. But this passage is not about their faith. Rather, it's about the object of their faith. It's not about miracles. It's about the miracle worker. And the big question as we finish this passage is not how they believe but who they believe in. 
And as king of all, he demands our allegiance. And what does that mean? What does it mean to the mission of the church? Well, it means he still has power. He still has authority. Therefore, as a church, we're called to obey his command and to preach the gospel. And as a church, we know he still has compassion. Therefore, we're prepared to get involved, not to shrink back, to have a siege mentality, but to be involved in the world. He's still the king of everyone. Therefore, we should pray and support, uh, maybe even be missionaries. But lastly, what about you and me? Well, he still has power, he still has authority. Surely that should give us confidence. Maybe you feel weak. That's good, because he isn't. He still has compassion. Well, that's good news, isn't it? Do you feel you've messed up? Well, join the club. We're all in the same one. We've all messed up, and yet Christ has compassion. And he's still king of all. And that means if we try to build our life on anything else, we're just building it on the quicksand he talked about in the previous chapter. And one day the storm of judgment will wipe it away. And the only reasonable option we're left with from these verses is to follow the king. Thank you.